As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and Ferrari put up quite a fight but couldn't stop Red Bull bagging a 1-2 with Max Verstappen taking a record 10th consecutive win. But could Carlos Sainz have given the Tifosi the win they craved in the Italian Grand Prix? And what explains Ferrari's renewed turn of speed? I'm Ed Straw and joining us with all the answers from the Italian Grand Prix are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well Mark, we'll come to you first. You're joined by a, a special producer in the background who we've seen, but can you just lay the scene for us it might explain any chaos that emerges yeah well that's back to the dog um yeah he's uh he helps me uh with the with the podcast and um yeah he's uh we, we you know we do that special high frequency bit at the end of the podcast that humans can't hear for the dog so he just oversees that bit that's the bit when we say what we really think, all the stuff we're hiding and the, <laughs> the secrets and our secret hidden agendas that only people on, well, it's only dogs and people on social media who can work out the secret agendas, isn't it? But uh, anyway, Scott Mitchell, who is now at a fairly sensible angle, but uh, Scott Mitchell, Malm, as he reminds me, sorry, I try and respect your uh, your newly found dual Anglo-Swedishness, etc. But sometimes I forget. Scott Mitchell Malm, my apologies, sitting at a normal angle. Now, you were reclining in an odd way. We've got a bit of a suboptimal setup. We haven't got enough chairs. No, uh, we, we, we don't. As we sit here and record this in uh, my hotel room, uh, we, we do face a chair shortage. I've grabbed one of the, the stools to sit on and I was trying to originally, I put it up against the back of the bed and was trying to lean against the bed for a bit of lumbar support, but that was a terrible position to be in. So I've just switched now. I'm 90 degrees to the uh, angle that I was at before. But I think it's going to really, th- as you can tell by this engagement, this is going to make for some top quality podcasting. So imagine how bad it would have been if I was sat the other way. Yeah, if you're in that weird sort of sitting on a chaise long with no chaise long kind of thing, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked, I don't think. But before we get into the main meat of the podcast, I think we should probably talk about Max Verstappen's record. Ten in a row, Mark Hughes. I'm delighted it's happened simply because it's an unequivocal consecutive wins record and it gets rid of all those asterisks about Ferraris and the Indy 500, etc. This is absolutely 10 victories in a row, no question, the new record. Quite an achievement, isn't it? 
It is an amazing achievement, and yeah, I'm, I'm relieved more than anything that it's happened because you know we would have had to start again. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, not just a record for him, of course. It's a record 15 for Red Bull as well. And uh, yeah, both um, astronomical achievements given the, um, the 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 level, the the standard of um, the, the the teams that it's competing against. Uh, so you're delighted, Ed, and Mark's relieved. You both could have just worn orange on this podcast your Max Verstappen agendas are shining through exactly well I've got a flare I'm going to let off midway through the uh, the podcast as well but I, I oh, think Baxter will like that oh exactly yeah yeah <laughs> dogs and flares that's not a good mix but quite an exciting one anyway combustible literally but I think it's important to say because everybody will be tempted I, I understand why it's seen as as boring and predictable because it is quite predictable and it it's it's boring only insofar as the exceptional in sport can be boring because it comes predictable. It takes so much to do this. Yeah, the Red Bull's a really good car, but Verstappen has been so good and that team has been so good across the board. The package, no matter what's thrown at them, they're on top of it and it's just not easy. Well, the thing that makes it sort of stand out to me, I, I kind of alluded to this, I think it was on our pre-Monza podcast where in a way kind of wanted to see like for example Red Bull do do the unthinkable and, and win every race in a season because f- flippantly we've sat through so much domination now I kind of want it to be worth it I want there to be something to show for it at the end in the form of something special in the form of a record and Max's 10 wins in a row is kind of part of that right so that's really special witnessing it's really special and it's only boring or diminished in, in a way where you don't appreciate everything behind it. In, I think this is excellent in the same way I thought Michael Schumacher reaching seven world titles was excellent. In the same way that I thought Lewis Hamilton becoming a centurion and poles and wins. So something that has never been done before. That that that's what's stunning, right? When when you it's not just oh another really great thing's been achieved. It's an oh another another race victory Red Bull's just racked up its X win in, in Formula 1 this has never been done before to, to to witness that and sit through it, it it might not be visually as a spectacle the most exciting thing that's happened in Formula 1 but it has it has an immense kind of intangible value to it because it's unique and I do think it will be reflected on in the in the future. For that, uh, you won't you won't think, oh yeah, but how many of those races weren't they so boring? What a boring season that was. There might be a footnote to it in people's memories, but the overriding achievement is that sensational one that we should appreciate. Yeah, exactly, and it's always the same. Whenever there's been the supreme combinations or drivers who've been supremely successful, people when they look back on them, they can appreciate it. And that's what will happen now. There will be people who are not able to follow F1 now who become fans in the future say, I wish I'd seen that happen. So, yeah, we have to applaud it. And, yes, it would be great. My default is I always want as many different people fighting for wins as possible in any motor race because that's the most interesting thing. But the job is to win races. And that's what Red Bull and Verstappen are doing absolutely brilliantly. So, yeah, we, we really can't talk that down. So let's actually get on to talking about the race now. It was good to get the Verstappen brilliance out of the way because sometimes in the race report, uh, the race podcast, we don't 
talk too much about Verstappen's win for the simple reason that it was quite straightforward. But this one was quite interesting, Mark. There was quite a bit of work to do, wasn't there? But we'll have to look at it through the prism of that Ferrari versus Red Bull battle. So we did expect Ferrari to be pretty good at low downforce Monza and getting pole was certainly within the the realms of possibility but it was able to give Red Bull something to think about in the race let's put it that way even though they finished behind so why was it so strong and was there any possible way to have beaten a Red Bull or two given that pole position yeah the Ferrari's always had strong straight line speed it's always had very good rotation and balance in the slow corners like short duration corners it's very quick through um Monza, therefore, a really good layout for it. Um, but Ferrari exaggerated that by opting to fit it with a wing that was skinny, even by Monza standards, actually the same wing that they used last year. And that that buys you a bit of qualifying lap time over cars like the Red Bull, which had opted for a slightly bigger wing, even though inevitably that skinny wing brings a tyre wear penalty. And you couple that with Red Bull's usual pattern of taking three corners or so to get the front tyres properly up to temperature on a quali lap and a really committed lap from Carlos Sainz and Red Bull was bumped off pole for only the third time this season um, it brings that greater tyre wear you, 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 the, the tyres slide more and so that makes getting the favoured one stop a bit of a stretch but they managed it unlike last year when they also had um, pole uh, with Leclerc but lost the rest of Verstappen but it was still eating its tyres too quickly for Sainz to be able to keep Verstappen behind. He was very aggressive in his defence and that super strong straight line speed allowed him to just, you know, keep a slower car ahead for a long time. And um, he said afterwards he was even thinking for a while, just for a moment there, that he might just be able to keep this up. And uh, if he could just get to the first pit stop window, still with the, the car behind him if you could get that gap to drop into you know you might be able to do it all over again in a second stint but then he suddenly got the um the big drop off and grip from the rear tires uh he said it was about lap 12 and from there it was you know game over because that was too early really to make that first stop um it would have meant too long a, a second stint and it also there was no gap from drop into um, so I, I, for that reason, I don't see that there was any way of Ferrari winning it, you know, given that Verstappen was on top of the situation. Um, he couldn't come in as soon as Verstappen had passed him to do the undercut because, as I say, he didn't have the gap to drop into. Uh, the field hadn't, hadn't spread very much by lap 15 and he'd, he'd come out behind Ocon and Bottas, so he wouldn't have been able to do the fast undercut outlap. And as I say, it would have been too <clears throat> too long for a second set of tyres because of that high wear that the skinny wing had imposed. It gave me a similar feeling to when um, uh, Leclerc almost won at Silverstone in it must it must have been 2021 after the the Hamilton Verstappen crash, like a really heroic failure, like so like like absolutely everything's thrown at it and the driver's done a really good job the car's not quite there and there's clearly a degree of overachievement and circumstance playing into it and it doesn't just it doesn't quite come off because Ferrari obviously is their home race so they throw absolutely everything into this um, but it was also track characteristic wise as Mark was explaining friendly to the car and I think Jock Clear was explaining on Sunday morning that you heard this from him directly Ed but I remember listening to the audio 
they obviously realised early in the season, they knew early in the season that they were strong on the low drag circuit. So it makes sense, it's logical to prioritise a full-on low drag special, a Monza special basically for the for the rear wing. Just throw absolutely everything because one, it's the home race, but two, it is probably the best chance if that is where, where the strengths of the car stack up. So everything was put into it. They executed really well across the weekend in qualifying and in the race. So Ferrari rarely, because obviously we we do spend every now and again t- chunks of time on this podcast dissecting where they've gone wrong or where we think they should have done better. They, they, they got everything out of this and to have to have taken the pole, to have fought so gamely in that first stint, to have split the Red Bulls for so long, to have looked okay, it was unlikely they were going to hold on for a win, but one car, maybe both cars on the podium looked possible for for a decent chunk of of the race. Like They gave absolutely everything to this, and I I wrote this in our post-race verdict on the website, but they were... we, We owe Ferrari quite a lot because this was the most entertaining race at the very front, and okay, there was a degree of, yeah, fighting the inevitable... But they gave it a really good go. And, and and after Sainz put in a really good performance at Zandvoort last weekend in a car that was really badly suited to the track and had so little to show for it in the form of a, what, sixth in qualifying, fifth in the race, I think, to have then carried that into here and just performed exceptionally well, it just, there was a lot about it to like. And they didn't need to complete the job for me to appreciate what they did and think, oh, they, yeah, they gave it a red hot go and fair play to them because they did a really good job with it. Yeah, P3, P4, I think, for Ferrari was it's almost a class win, if you want to put it that way. And I think <laughs> they made Red Bull work quite hard for it, even though it was always going to be a, a losing fight. Fred Vasseur, his first Italian Grand Prix, his first home Grand Prix as Ferrari team principal, was saying that he, he tried to keep everyone's expectations in check and say, oh, same amount of points for Monza as everywhere else. But he was admitting it was quite hard when you've got all the Tafosi everywhere not to get a little bit carried away from it so I actually think it was quite good that Ferrari could execute well I think this is a very good weekend for them because it would be naive to imagine they'd somehow turn up here with a car that was quicker uh, than Red Bull but Mark we should briefly also talk about Sergio Perez at this point because obviously he's about three and a half tenths off in qualifying started fifth made his way past Russell and then the two Ferraris it took him pretty much the whole race to get up to second but considering it's quite hard work to make the passes pretty effective race drive from him wasn't it he got the second place that he's there for yes that's the 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 sort of job that's expected of him and uh, he delivered in this instance and it took a while to get past the Ferraris because, of course, the um, Leclerc had DRS from Sainz, uh, from Verstappen, who had, was, you know, getting from Sainz. And then it swapped around. He still had the DRS. So it took him a while, but he, he did it. Um, when he came past Russell, Russell said he could barely believe how much quicker it was than the Mercedes through Parabolica. Um, so that, you know, the, it, it, it's it, a fantastic race car. And it's, as we touched on before, it's not at its absolute best in qualifying. Um, and so, yeah, it was uh, it, it gave Checo a bit of work to do, but he did it. So, yes, uh, um, a perfectly, perfectly okay sort of performance. I, I thought it was probably his best performance for a little while. I actually thought it was a, not, not by a, a huge amount, but... I did think it was a better second place than the one he got at Spa, for example, just before the the summer break where, you know, there's a on on paper a Red Bull one two and he's 
led for a while and just done a really good job, solid weekend. But this felt a bit more, you know, earned feels like a slightly harsh way of saying it. But as we as we say, it you, Verstappen showed against signs how difficult it was to get in front of a faster car on the straights. And Perez had a few more to overtake. And I, 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 so I, I was actually quite impressed with, with with that driver. I thought it was one of his better ones because he's had decent end results, hasn't he, since he last won a Grand Prix. But the performances or the ways of getting there have been a bit sort of flaky or a bit harder than they needed to be. And yet it kind of was that way because of the qualifying result. But just the circumstances of everything, I just thought it was, I thought it was a better kind of second. Than, than than we've seen at some other races. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think this was a, a strong race performance. Let's come back to Carlos Sainz though, Scott, because he was comfortably, well I say comfortably, he was clearly the lead Ferrari driver this weekend. In the end, the gap was quite small in qualifying and the race, but really from the start of free practice one, he was really on it, wasn't he? And does it surprise you a little bit that it was Sainz, especially coming after Zandvoort, where he had a strong weekend, certainly once he'd kind of work through the, the troubles in practice. Well, I was really impressed that he finally pulled a, a really big peak out of the bag because I think it's been fairly clear that when that car's been capable of big results, Leclerc's the one that's got them, but Sainz has almost been this much better constant through this weird season that Ferrari's having. That huge variance of performance has an impact to the driver that seems to have had 20 fifth-place finishes <laughs> this year he just seems to have always been sort of around fifth or sixth and that that goes for whether the car's capable of being second or third or whether the car looks like it might only be seventh or eighth you know that's where signs has been so to land a really punchy peak like this one to get the pole in front of Monza like whatever whatever signs does for the rest of his Ferrari career the rest of his F1 career he's put he's put a Ferrari on pole at Monza and he's led for Ferrari at the Italian Grand Prix which is amazing so a degree of surprise in that it didn't quite match the narrative of the season and I think it's a not controversial position to say that we think Leclerc's a slightly faster driver than Sainz over one lap. But in the context of riding the crest of the wave, as I said, after a great race at Zandvoort, hit the ground running here, really seemed to be in a sweet spot with the car. He just seemed really dialed in over a lap. Actually, if anything, Leclerc was... You know, looked like the faster, more comfortable driver in race trim. But Carlos was super fast over one lap and defended resolutely, regardless of who it was that was trying to overtake him. And I think we owe Ferrari a big thank you for not intervening in that Sainz Leclerc battle, because I thought that was, considering what was on the line and the, the risk of it going wrong, I thought it was really good that they were able to go at it hammer and tong the way they did. Yeah, Leclerc went a bit of a different direction with the. Uh mechanical setup in particular on the Friday and he went to Sainz's setup for the Saturday and didn't quite bridge across that that gap and Sainz was stunningly quick in the second chicane well into and through it and out of it to be honest really really fast through that so that was a very very special bit of the qualifying lap from Sainz but Mark that Sainz-Leclerc battle for third place obviously got pretty lively didn't it uh, towards the end in particular and there was the instruction from the pit wall that they could fight but with no risk and Fred Vasseur stressed that, that he had the final say on laying out that policy so do you think 
Leclerc's late attack and that big lockup and the few other moments they had. There was another one of the second chicane before that really qualifies as no risk. And what do you make of that battle? <laughs> I love to see it. It was a real no-holds-barred fight from teammates. Uh, was it no risk from Leclerc? Not really, but his lockup was induced by signs chopping across him in defence. So, and Charles did find a way out of that situation uh, without you know contact. I loved that battle. It was fought with passion and pride. And Sainz had been the lead Ferrari driver all weekend. He'd taken the fight of Verstappen. He'd suffered greater tyre wear as a result. And he wasn't in the mood to surrender. And if they'd crashed, yeah, it would have been a big drama within the team. But as fans, I don't think we should be too concerned about that. Why watch a sport hoping that nothing happens and everything's managed well, like in a business? This is a sport between humans and its, its essence became a bit more visible than usual. So yeah, yeah was- more of this sort of thing. Yeah, it was a it was a real real guts and glory fight to be the Ferrari driver on the podium, wasn't it? It was awesome to see something with clearly such emotional um, stakes for the for, for the drivers, and they really really wanted it. It wasn't just personal pride; it was it was just the whole sense of the occasion. So yeah, that, it, it really was fantastic to see. Yeah, it's funny actually. After the race, I did ask Fred Vasseur if what they were doing late in the race really fell under the uh, the category of no risk and he said well, I don't want to have a polemic he was far too sensible to get too involved in that I'm sure there will have been some heart to mouth but I also like the fact that Charles Leclerc said after when he was asked about being told not to take risks he said well we both took risks really because Carlos was on the limits of the regulations on breaking and I was on the limits of the regulations attacking but all's well that ends well so it's one of those ones that uh, yeah as you say Mark, it was a, a great fun battle, but it would be a very different conversation if it all went wrong. And it's one of those terrible things that the team doesn't really gain out of it. But you've got to let the drivers have a bit of a battle sometimes. And yeah, I agree with you. It was great fun to watch. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's move on to the group behind now, Scott. Obviously, we had formation flying effectively in the top six with Red Bull, Red Bull, Ferrari, Ferrari, then two Mercedes. George Russell was fifth with Lewis Hamilton sixth. Both picked up five-second penalties along the way. Russell's was quite a straightforward one for going off the track in passing Esteban Ocon after his pit stop, but Hamilton's was a much more dramatic one. Was that merited for his clash with Oscar Piastri? Uh, Yeah, it was by the letter of the law forcing another driver off the track I guess um or causing a collision I can't remember which one it which one it specifically was now actually but I think for either of them we we, we now have this it's kind of established isn't it five five second penalty really it doesn't doesn't ever seem to be any more egregious than that from a from a penalty point of view so I I know there was I would there were there were two quite extreme reactions to the penalty with some people who didn't think Hamilton deserved a penalty at all and some people who thought you know, it was a really measly penalty considering it ruined Piastri's race, dropped him out of the points. And ultimately, Hamilton was able to continue and catch the cars in front and get ahead of them and pull clear so that he didn't lose any positions because of his penalty. He was in the wrong. He drifted over. Um, he didn't leave Piastri enough space. Piastri can't just disappear in that scenario. Piastri at that point is not even contesting the corner. He's just breaking 
and slowing down for it. Um, so I just think in that situation, like Hamilton held his hands up and said it was his fault. He even did that during the race. So there's no, despite what some people were doing, there's no real defence for him for that. And it was clumsy enough in the fact that it's not just, you know, a, um, you know, it's not a will-to-will contact insofar as, you know, they're racing for position, going for the apex, and they just happen to collide slightly. That has happened just because of a slightly careless misjudgment, if you want to put it that way. And for that, I think a penalty's fine. And for that, a five-second penalty is fine. It's just the circumstances of the race with Hamilton being out of position meant that he was able to make up that time. But that if he'd have been in a normal position in that Grand Prix, that I'm sure five seconds would have been the difference between him beating his teammate or beating a faster car or, or, or not. So I, I thought it was fine. Yeah, certainly his fault, ultimately, when push comes to shove. And yeah, I think it was, uh, rather than anything, it obviously wasn't deliberate because it, Every chance it damages your car as well, but yeah, I yeah, that's that's a fairly uh, fairly clear set of circumstances where one driver's caused the contact. So yeah, I don't think you can argue too much about that. Mark, what did you make about the Mercedes performance? I guess we were pretty much expecting something like this. So fifth and sixth, all things considered, about right for a car with those characteristics. Yeah, car's a bit too draggy to compete with a Ferrari around this track, but it was less draggy than the McLaren. Got more from the tyres than the Aston, but. You needed to qualify it well, otherwise you're at risk of getting beat by Alex Albans Williams. So Hamilton just about managed to do that in the last lap, pulling out enough time to overcome that penalty. Um, yeah, it's, the Merck, it, it seems to be about the same amount off the pace at most tracks. It's just that the other cars sort of go up and down around it, like the Ferrari for example, probably not be as competitive in Singapore, but you know it's, it's super competitive in Monza. Um, it's it's just yeah, that's that's about where the Merck's at, you know. Yeah, so I guess they've got to be fairly content with it. Obviously, they did that long first stint with the medium uh, with the hard tyres rather for Hamilton for the first stint, and that worked well in the end because he could attack a bit later on. And good strong weekend for George Russell as well. He's obviously put his recent qualifying struggles behind him Scott wrote a good piece that ran during the weekend about how he's focused on being back to basics George Russell that is Scott didn't focus on getting back to basics in writing the piece I've given up on that <laughs> yeah all about overcomplication, but yeah a good positive result there for him let's talk about Williams now Scott always expects to go well at low downforce Monza Alex Alban didn't disappoint at all with seventh place could he done any better and how did Logan Sargent's first points finish slip through his fingers I don't think Alban could have done any better in this Grand Prix in fact I think he overachieved this was a bit more of a classic Alban Williams point scoring finish one where they get track position by doing an excellent job in qualifying or through the race or whatever in the, in this case it was both um, and then holding on by a combination of fantastic straight line speed and faultless driving from Alban whereas at Zandvoort for example Alban and Williams were just emphatically uh, competitive so it wasn't a question of would they score points at Zandvoort it was how many they would score which was a surprise because they didn't expect to go well there at all whereas this was a bit more of a struggle in in race trim there were a couple of corners highest the higher speed corners where the car was quite tricky Alban admitted that it was quite difficult to manage that stint uh, the second stint in particular for as, as long as he did 
Um, and he admitted that if he was Lando Norris, he'd have been very annoyed by that race, just by Williams being too fast to really attack. Lando had a go. Albon was just on the line, I think, of... I don't think he fully forced Norris off. He didn't make it easy either, so I can see why Norris skipped over the curb and was a bit annoyed. It's one of those where if you're the driver attacking or the driver defending, your position on it is determined entirely by whether you're trying to overtake or trying to hold on. And then as for Sargent, lacked Albon's pace when it counted, didn't hook it up in qualifying, got caught out, I think, by that ATA this weekend where you're on the hards, then the mediums, then the softs. He was really quite strong on on the hards, but then got onto the mediums and couldn't go faster and was really at a loss to explain that in qualifying and then in the race because this weekend he had the older spec Williams uh, front wing um, which he felt he didn't use as an excuse in qualifying so I think over one lap with the new tyres I don't really think he, he lost a lot but he felt that over a race distance that imbalance that came with that older wing just hurt him a little bit more so he just couldn't quite make the long stints work in the way Albon uh, could he was also just slower just sim- simply slower which meant when he got very briefly into that 10th place and that one point paying position because of Piastri's pit stop after the damage he picked up from the Hamilton clash he he didn't hold on to it and in fact he lost it very quickly to Valtteri Bottas had a clash with him which was basically the clash was because Sargent was just a bit overzealous in his defence and admits he admits that he knew that it was his fault. He said no hard feelings with Bottas. Bottas didn't care because he came out of it with, with the point. Um, so another missed opportunity for Sargent. And I think, yeah, he and Williams are quite lucky that Albon's doing all of the point scoring so emphatically that Albon could finish seventh in the championship on his own because that car is good enough for both cars to score points. Albon's not just constantly fluking these points finishes and this would have been a great time after some difficulties and some speculation about his future for Sargent to get that point regardless of the circumstances and the fact that he didn't, it yeah, it doesn't bode too well for, for his chances. He's, he's, he's up against it a little bit now, I think, to make a compelling case to be kept on for next year. Yeah, it's becoming a recurring story, isn't it? Showing some good pace at times, but then not making good on it for various reasons. Yeah, I know there was the front wing spec difference between the two and his engine was a bit older. But yeah, just needs, I keep saying it, he's just got to string together a few Grand Prix weekends, which he hasn't properly done yet. Mark, let's talk about McLaren now. Just the four points for them, courtesy of Landon Norris's eighth place. Was there any more in the car or was the real drama just the fact that he and Oscar Piastri had that uh, that clash, the, the circumstances around which Andrea Stella, the team principal, said were unacceptable because, of course, it also was related to the timing of their pit stops doing the reverse order in terms of timing. So what did you make of all of that? Yeah, it was dramatic for the team. Um, but I was just saying about the Ferrari guys, it's a sport and they're competing and there are times when the driver's interests diverge from those of the team. It's just part of the sport. And there wasn't, I don't think there's any more in the car than that. Um, obviously, they, they lost points through the incident because um, they should have had two cars scoring rather than just one. Um, but it, yeah, the, the car wasn't um, at its best around Monza. They'd made a late notice, low drag wing. It was just a, an adaptation of a an existing wing sort of cut about and spaces at the outboard end to reduce the drag rather than a more time and cost intensive, very highly profiled wings. It, you know, the, their, their focus has been very much on the the updates um, that came Austria and Silverstone on and, that, and that's that's dominated their um, efforts. So, yeah, the, 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 the outlier circuit, the wings for the two outlier circuits, Spa and Monza was just not on the high on the priorities. 
Um, it wasn't very efficient, and the cars were slow on the straights, hence why they, they couldn't pass Albon, even though they were probably significantly faster over the lap. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the stellar comments, and he was pointing out that he felt the two drivers put themselves above the team. So that was a good marker. I'm quite pleased he laid down that marker because it's very easy when things don't go badly wrong to take the Vassar approach and say that's all fine. But yeah, it's a fine line. So uh wants to keep him on a short leash. But yeah, also great to see for those on the outside. How about Aston Martin? Fernando Alonso managed only ninth. Described the car as very difficult in the race. Nobody was expecting big things from Aston Martin here, but why was the performance quite so underwhelming? I don't know. Uh, and the reason I don't know is that they don't seem to know. It's puzzling. Not not that you'd have expected it to be Ferrari fast on a circuit, which rewards low drag, but it shouldn't have qualified eight tenths off the Mercedes. And they were carrying a singer, similar amount of wing. They've got the same engine, of course. Uh, it, was, it seems to be something to do with the tyres because it was only a tenth off on the hards in Q1, uh, two tenths off on the mediums in Q2, but a whopping eight tenths off on the soft. So there's something not right there. Yeah, it's uh, very much a tricky one for them because it was never going to be great. But yeah, just that little bit further off. And Alonso, actually, after the race, he, I mean, a lot of the drivers were looking quite hot because it was a hot day, hard work. But Alonso was saying, yeah, that was that was a tough one. That was hard work, even for him. So if Lando Alonso is getting out of the car and feeling like he's had to work very hard for a P9, you know it's not a great day for the team. And of course, Lance Stroll in the other car had a very difficult weekend. He was unlucky, sat out FP1, fuel system problem in FP2, and then he was massively on the back foot and, uh, yeah, didn't really go anywhere. Lost a couple of places on the last lap as well. But, yeah, not a great weekend uh, for him, although there were external factors for him in fairness. And Scott, we have touched on that battle for the final point and various drivers are in it. You've explained how Sargent had it briefly and then uh, Bottas got him should we focus briefly on Bottas I guess that means we're safe in Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner because that's the first Sauber point since the Canadian Grand Prix in mid-June yeah uh, happy for him happy for the team as well for Sauber's sponsor Alfa Romeo it's a big race and there was the launch of a new car in advance they had the new livery on the car this weekend the drivers were wearing bespoke um, special livery race suits and had all sorts of stuff going on this weekend so it was a really big one and they were absolutely rubbish through through practice Joe Guan Yu was was telling me after qualifying that it was really only in, in qualifying that it started to feel feel a bit better even so a points finish was looking extremely optimistic but Bottas was rightfully very very happy um at the end of the race it, it it ends that drought even though it's only you know a solitary point and it's bittersweet because they would have still they'd have been clinging to the hope that you know just one big score would allow them to maybe jump Haas and Wi- even Williams and get seventh in the championship and when you finally get back into the points but Williams has a, another red letter day with with Albon like I say it's it's bittersweet but Bottas was definitely looking on the the the, the bright side of things he was really happy with how it played out I think they got the strategy um, really right on, on his side a little bit of fortune obviously with things like the, the, the Piastri clash but ultimately it was deserved the team did a good job Bottas clearly did a did a good job and they and they turned around a weekend that was looking uh, <laughs> looking fairly mediocre at one stage 
Yeah, and I think that team needs every little boost it can get because it's been a long, hard season. And Bottas, although he's been a bit up and down this year, he has had some decent weekends that have gone very unrewarded and very anonymous. So, yeah, good for them. But we should also perhaps, Scott, talk a little bit about Liam Lawson. Obviously, he didn't score a point, but as you pointed out earlier, he has achieved something that's sort of big. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose so, symbolically. Um, it's not coincidental it's it's an incidental um achievement in that by finishing up being classified where he was which was uh 11th i think after uh, piastri's penalty um lawson is now ahead of daniel ricardo the driver that he replaced in the championship obviously they've both now done two races each lawson has a best finish of 11th after today and ricardo's was 13th in in hungary because obviously the belgian grand prix was uh was um what was the word compromised one um for him so it means it means no it doesn't mean that Lawson's done a better job in the two races he's done versus the two races that Ricardo's done and the job he did there it's just about um it's just about you know how each individual race played out what I will say is that it does show that Lawson's come in and done a very respectable job straight out the blocks because you can't be in a position to inherit quote unquote 11th place in a grand prix purely by chance not not unless there are seven or eight retirements and it's quite chaotic. I, I, was, I thought Lawson did a really good job this weekend. He seemed to really sort of layer in the performance through practice. Neither AlphaTauri driver was particularly pleased in qualifying despite getting quite close to Q3. He was close to Sonoda on lap time. We have no idea what this AlphaTauri was capable of in the race in Sonoda's hands because obviously he didn't even get to make the start. But I thought Lawson did a really good job and he was on an unorthodox strategy with that second stop late on. Christian Horner was asked about it in his press conference afterwards and raised an eyebrow when he when he was like, well, I need to check what the race analysis because that strategy doesn't really make any sense was basically the the implication. But he said, you know, that Lawson's given a really good account of himself and, and I would agree. I thought this was a, a very, very strong first full weekend in the car. Yeah, Zandvoort was impressive in a different way insofar as he had very little time to feel his way in and just looked comfortable, gave it a bit of a go at times. But that's a a very different bar to clear. And I think what I wanted to see this weekend is him taking a step on that, showing a bit more pace, putting together a sort of normal weekend. And yeah, I think this is another good step from Lawson. He's certainly advancing his case for a race drive so far and sounds like he'll get a few more races at least. But yeah, bad luck for Yuki Tsunoda though. That's uh, not even making the the grid, but he was a little bit disappointed in terms of uh, how he qualified. He felt he could have got into Q3 and obviously he was extremely close to Q3. So difficult weekend for AlphaTauri. Well, our now traditional final section is devoted to questions from the Race Members Club. Head to therace.com and click on Join the Race to find out more. And thanks to everyone for your support and your questions. And Scott, you're up first with a question from Kieran Holden, who says, I find Liam Lawson in his short career so far to be mightily impressive. If Daniel Ricciardo and Sonoda fill those AlphaTauri seats next year, where would Liam Lawson go? Well, I'm not going to take credit for this. I'm going to give credit to our colleagues Josh and Val because I think this came from a discussion in our uh, online comms system during, uh, was it qualifying? I don't think this was a race conversation, was it? I think this is from qualifying. And it was basically suggested that 
if you're if you're Red Bull and you don't have that AlphaTauri seat to give Lawson next year, or you 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 know you really want to put Ricardo in alongside Sonoda or whatever, and if you're Williams and you really think you need to replace Logan Sargent, there's a conversation to be had there because Sar- Sargent. The, my concern is I feel like Lawson at Monza did in qualifying and the race what Sargent hasn't done all season in a car that he's very familiar with. And it was an indication of what is possible for a driver to achieve when they're quite confident, quite happy, and obviously quite good. Lawson's not gone in and, you know, suddenly piled in a mega points finish or anything like that, but he's got relatively close to the maximum of the car or got close to the established teammate. And, And Sargent's never done either of those things emphatically. So... Red Bull need to find this guy a full-time F1 seat next season. If he, if uh, He's going to get Singapore by the sounds of it, and it sounds like he might get Japan as well. So he's going to have four Grand Prix, three really, because I don't think you can count Zandvoort. I think it's unfair to count Zandvoort. Three full Grand Prix weekends show what he can do. If the other two are anywhere near as good as this weekend, because those tracks will be a bit trickier, even though he knows Suzuka very well from Super Formula already, I, I think you have to find him a full-time F1 seat next year. And in that situation, a loan deal send him into Williams for a year or two could work for all parties because it's a very, very small sample set, I will admit this. But at the moment, I get the impression that Lawson would be an upgrade on Sargent. Yeah, and again, it illustrates the advantage of being in a race seat because you can advance your case. You can actually do something. The next question is from Andrew Wilson, which I'll take, who asks, does this weekend validate Alpine's claim that they are down on horsepower relative to the other engine suppliers? And would it strengthen their claim for engine equalisation? I won't get into the power level specifically because there's a question that will follow this that will tackle that. But I think it's... Does it validate? It helps Alpine's argument, certainly. They knew they weren't going to be competitive this weekend. They obviously did struggle. Both cars were out in Q1. I don't think either driver maximised the car in qualifying, but I think probably with a fair wind, you're getting through to Q2 in an Alpine at best. So I think it did show there's a weakness there. However, you've got to be very, very careful about boiling down the performance of a car into just one factor okay the engine's very very important but your car's significant your drag level's significant and obviously there are elements where that feeds into or where that's influenced by the engine because obviously you have to make your wing compromise based on engine power etc so i think it's probably helps their cause and i think they will continue to lobby and they'll say well look at monza but i think more than anything it just validates the fact that alpine as a whole, are a little bit all over the place. Fundamentally, it's you know third place in Zandvoort one day, and then seven days later, just nowhere at Monza. So yeah, a little bit, and that connects to the next question I'll throw to Mark from JK, who says this weekend has shown that the Renault power unit is clearly a decent way off its competitors. But how do Ferrari, Merck, and Honda stack up against each other in terms of engine performance? So initially, where would you put the Alpine compared to those, and then get into the meat of the question, which is the other three. Yeah, the the Alpine, the Renault, clearly at the back of that group. Um, they claim it's about twenty five horsepower, but I mean it's about more than just horsepower. Isn't it? With a, a hybrid engine, it's you know it's, it's about efficiency. It's, it's there's people inside the team reckon it's it's probably four or five tenths off a, a, a cutting edge engine. Um, the 
other three are still very closely matched by all accounts. The Ferrari, the Ferrari edges it, I believe, but the Honda and Mercedes are behind by only the tiniest amount, less than a tenth between the three of them, is what I've been told. Um, and they have each been more proactive in their fuel, oil, reliability upgrades because at the end of last year, Renault was competitive with them. Next question for you, Scott, comes from Francis Cheer, who says, are five-second penalties appropriate in all the situations that arose in this race? Seems to me the perpetrators got off lightly. We've touched on this, I know, but the general point of five-second penalties? Yeah, I understand where this is coming from because it, it basically adheres to the principle of does the punishment fit the crime, right? And the difficulty is is that the, there is, generally speaking, an effort to to punish the offence rather than the outcome so you don't take the circumstances into it and I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast before I'm pretty sure this is consistent with what I've said a few times now I was once of the view that um, you should only focus on the specific offence like as in not the details of it and what happened to the person the aggrieved party but specifically only what the the actions of the the offender basically and i still believe in a racing context that that is broadly an okay principle to try to try and follow because otherwise tiny tiny errors in judgment that do cause big things will get disproportionately punished you know someone that because someone's moved in front of them whatever and like breaks their front wing if they break their front wing on someone's left rear tyre and that causes that person's left rear tyre to suddenly deflate while braking for turn one at the start and then that car flies into the pack. Like, that, if you're judging it by the consequences and the guy who starts that by hitting the person's tyre should get, like, a race ban or something because they've caused this massive Roman Grosjean-style Spa 2012 shunt. And that's not right. But there is an element of... You, you do risk a scenario where people play the penalty that they think they're going to get. I have a sneaking suspicion that's kind of what happened with Russell, with the Alpine, for example, where if you think worst case scenario, all I'm going to get for doing this is five seconds, but I've got 10 or 15 seconds on the person I'm really racing behind, then it's worth the trade-off, right, to get the clear air and then run the race as, as it seems. So what I think there needs to be is a little bit more freedom in the use of the... Because they actually do have a little menu of options available to them for, for, for any of the offences and penalties they dish out. And maybe a little bit of variety of using that would, wouldn't would go amiss. Because it's a little bit like when we talk about the cost cap, right? Where we say that the reason that you don't know what the penalty is for breaching the cost cap is because then you can't play your penalty against what you would gain from breaking the rules. And I think it should be the same in racing. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, point you made there. And it's uh, yeah, not necessarily one size fits all. Next question I'll take from Mike Meredith says, what a fantastic achievement. 10 race wins in a row for Verstappen and Red Bull. Team and driver are completely dialed in and the rest of the field look like they are in a different formula. How do we stop this from ever happening again, though? Rule changes, more spec parts, reverse grids, ban Adrian Newey. This kind of dominance must be hurting the sport. And as a fan since 1995, I find myself less and less inclined to dedicate an afternoon to Formula One knowing that there will be an inevitable outcome. Well, I I get what you're saying, and I get why you're saying it. It is unfortunate when it feels predictable. As I said earlier, exceptional performances in sport can look boring, and the exceptional can be made to look boring, and you want to see close competition. But I don't think you can do anything to stop it, or rather I don't think you should do anything to stop it, because philosophically... If you have a sporting competition, 
at its pure center you have a set of rules that people are playing to and if one competitor does a clearly better job than the rest they are better at the sports than the rest then they should dominate if you don't have that you don't have a sport do you and we see performance balancing and that kind of thing in other categories i wouldn't want to see that now rule changes well you can change the rules shuffle the pack who knows what happens rule changes for this year there was a suggestion it might have hurt red bull it helped them just creates an opportunity the best team can still gain from it more spec parts well you can have a spec car look at f2 there's still big teams and small teams there and a performance spread (laughs) reverse grids well reverse grids i think are about making winning more complicated rather than changing necessarily who wins because the quick cars will still come through from the back but it just changes the approach just look at short over racing for that but adrian newey well i know that's a flippant one but there's an element there of what other teams can learn from what adrian newey offers but there's not many adrian newey's around so yeah is it hurting the popularity of the sport probably but you've got to have a sport you can't fix it to be what you want and if you try to fix it to be what you want there's a good chance it backfires hopefully we won't see these spells of domination, but you say you've been a fan since 95. Well, Ferrari have had their spell of dominance in that. Red Bull have had their first dominance. Mercedes, then back to Red Bull again. Sometimes it's a fact of life, much as we'd like it to swing from one year to the next. But I would say the rules and the cost cap and the Concord Agreement, etc., everything is geared towards broadly starting to level up the performance potential of the teams it's going to take a long time for that effect to happen it's glacial progress but it will happen and if the more teams you have that have similar performance potential because of their resources what they've got etc the more shifting around or shuffling around you are likely to see down the line it's going to take time and there will always be some teams that are better than others mark the next question for you from neil's join apologies if i've mispronounced that is there any driver in recent history that has been this consistent as Max Verstappen has. And could you say that his consistency is probably his greatest quality as a driver? He's performing at an incredibly high level very consistently, and I think that's the the crucial bit. Um, and I'd, I'd say it's his level which is his greatest quality, the level he can reach. Um, but, yeah, to, to, to be able to sort of produce that race in, race out, very, very close to that peak all the time, that's what's remarkable. And, um, I mean, he's been super consistent, really, since the second part of 2018. Um, And with a car this good, there's no one to pressure him into the sort of ragged zone he got into in late 21. But even that, it was he was desperately trying to overcome a Merc, which by then was faster. And he was deliberately, almost as a strategy, consciously pushing against what is permitted rather than it being pushed into errors. So, um, no, I think he's, um, he's performing to a rem- remarkable level, but he, he has been for um, quite a few years now, I would say. And um, all you're seeing really is a, a progressively more competitive Red Bull. Next question to you, Scott, from Kieran Fletcher, who says, Ferrari broke the rules in Q1 and should have been punished. Is this the stewards not wanting to stir up trouble at the Italian Grand Prix? If I was in charge, I would run it with an iron fist, five-place grid penalty. This is about the lap time delta on prep laps. Um, I I understand where that comes from because sometimes with this kind of thing, uh, there is a belief that it's a slam dunk. Um, You know, there's a clear time that you need to respect the time's not been respected therefore it's a penalty but it is also very clear that the stewards will take into account um explicit the the specific circumstances of each of each incident and sometimes there are mitigating factors that mean 
breaching that 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 reference time it, it it's okay it, it it's it's basically designed to stop dawdling for the sake of dawdling and doing anything dangerous it's a means of basically enforcing that i can't remember is it in the sporting regs or the international sporting code or both about driving unnecessarily slowly basically it's basically about enforcing that so they looked at it they decided that the specific circumstance of that incident didn't constitute what that rule is designed to police therefore there was no further action so I understand why a lot of people interpreted it as, oh, it's a lot more convenient if we let Ferrari go here, but I don't think that came into it at all. I'll take the next one from Ranveer Menon, who says, is there any truth to the rumours about Joe's future being uncertain? It would be quite a late it would be quite a late twist, given we all thought his contract situation was a formality. Well, yes, it is uncertain. He hasn't got a deal yet for next year. He also hasn't not got a deal, if you see what I mean. So he's being told that they want to see a little bit more pace. He's admitted that... Uh, before but at the same time he'll probably think well I've shown some quite good pace but he had the problem at the start at the launch in Hungary that wasn't down to him and obviously the strategy at Zandvoort wasn't great and he was a little bit unlucky qualifying here but yeah ultimately I think the team are looking around well I know the team are looking around they're seeing who's out there and I think there's probably a little bit of trying to see what money they can get out of the various drivers involved. But I think this one is genuinely in the balance at the moment. But it's certainly not the case that Joe signed up and nobody's saying anything. That's not what's going on here. Joe is waiting on knowing what's going to happen. So Salva needs to take a decision. And personally, I can't see an outstanding alternative at this time. Although you look around, talk about loan deals for Liam Lawson, Taylor Pacher is... Salva aligned so there's options out there so yeah we'll see how it goes I think they'll just want to see a little bit more performance and maybe even a little bit more money out of Joe who offers quite a lot because he's a good sensible driver he's clean he works very well with the team they really like the way he works with his crew so there's some pluses to Joe but yeah it's not done and dusted and that's going to continue to be a question until he signs on the dotted line. Mark Oscar Robledo says, was a two-stop strategy ever a viable alternative? Hamilton was able to get past Norris and Albon on fresher mediums, for example. If you could keep your tyres in shape, a one-stop was calculated as 15 seconds faster, so a lot faster. Um, if you ended up being faster on a two-stop, it was because you'd got awful tyre wear. So for some, it might have been a better strategy, but only because they didn't have competitive tyre wear. Um, yeah, Hamilton did get past Norris and Albon, but I don't think that was as much to do with the tyre differential as it was to do with that the Merck was just a, a faster car than the Williams, and the the McLaren was being held to the Williams speed because it was slow on the straight and couldn't overtake on the straight. So that was sort of putting a you know keeping Lando within um, uh, Lewis's range after he he lost a lot of time. Um, with with the early with the with how the hard tires were behaving, um, so yeah, it, it, two stop wasn't really a, a, a competitive strategy. If you, if if your car was working, if you got the tires working, one stop was way faster. The next question for you, Scott, comes from Chuck Aoki. He says, "What do you make of the Williams back-to-back great finishes on fairly different tracks? Is this car better, or at least more consistent and balanced than everyone else aside from Red Bull, Ferrari, and Merck?" Oh, that's a big claim. Um, I, I don't say that to be dismissive of it. It's a very interesting one. The, the Zandvoort performance is really interesting, isn't it? It's such a such an, an anomaly against the season, but also against their own expectations. And then when you look at actually 
where Albin's been now for quite a while. There's a few tracks that you'd have assumed, oh, this will be one. They just seem to go into weekends going, oh, this won't be us. And there he is again, knocking on the door of Q3, knocking on the door of a points finish. And I certainly, it's the most, that combination is the most impressive giant killing of the season, but we're still sort of judging it off the, on the basis of our preseason expectations and the expectations of the team. And, you know, this is a car that was ultimately designed under the, uh, on the watch of a technical director that was binned and head of aero as well, or chief aerodynamicist, whichever title they had last year. And still doesn't have a, you know, has an interim technical director, and it, they've just they're now they've just re- recruit finished recruiting their new chief te- technical officer. It's clearly quite good, and I wonder if constantly judging the achievements off the preseason expectations wrong in the sense that actually is this not just is this not just between the fourth and seventh fastest car in F one, depending on the given track, it's not doesn't feel like the ninth or 10th fastest car, which until about, I feel like race eight or nine, Albon kept saying, I think we are actually only ninth or 10th fastest. We're just overachieving. But now it kind of feels like it's not, like the bar's been raised. And it's certainly tightly packed on that part of the, part of the field. And they've got a very good driver, and Alex Albon is doing an extremely good job. The next question from Christopher Parrott asks, how big a wrist slap will the McLaren boys get for their contact today? Well, yes, Andrea Stella wasn't very happy. And I think in all seriousness, the team will say, come on, guys, you cannot do this. If there's one thing that winds up a team, it's two drivers tripping over each other when it's not really critical to the mission. Just like with Ferrari. Ferrari as a team, okay, there's people on different sides of the garage, etc. But P3, P4 is P3, P4, whichever way round you are. And you don't want to jeopardise that with what you're doing. I do think what Stella is doing is probably laying down a marker for the future because if you if you take the all's well ends well approach with this as it did for McLaren then there's the risk of escalation. He'll just want that in the back of their mind next time. Yeah, don't do that. I think it's quite a good low stakes opportunity for Stella to make his points. So yeah, I think uh, that there will be a, a proper risk slap for them. Nothing tangible, but just a, a good proper come on. You can't do this. And it's an interesting little subplot for the future, isn't it? The battle between those two drivers because Piastri's coming on well and we know how good Lando Norris is. Next question, Mark, on a similar note, is from Danny Elliott. He says, do you have any thoughts on McLaren's decision to pit Norris before Piastri? It put Piastri in a very difficult position. Norris couldn't dispatch Albon and I thought the undercut wasn't necessary. They looked equal on pace. Was this the case? Yeah, I mean, this sometimes happens. It usually happens when the... Um, a guy behind is at risk from the car from a, the other team behind him, and so you have to react first with that in order to protect your. your, 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 your say you're running eight, eight nine, and your nine is under threat from another team. You might invert your own running order by you know getting in there to protect from that undercut threat from the other team but you're still running 8-9 you've just swapped your drivers around so that's better than running 8-10 and I think this is probably all that's happened you know Alonso was behind um, making Norris a bit vulnerable so they brought Norris in and immediately followed by Piastri and it had the effect of switching them around um, yeah that I think they did look pretty equal on pace although earlier in the, in the race Lando was of course insisting he could go he could go quicker but uh, you, you, you quite often see that as well and it's not always the case so, yeah, just one of those situations. I don't think there's anything political to read into it. 
Next question for you, Scott from Christopher Partridge. Why was Sergio Perez so timid into turn one, consistently outbreak by rivals when going wheel to wheel? Um, I think it was a little bit of discretion being the better part of valour, to be honest, because we saw a few times, didn't we, how many, like, you're piling in on the outside and the idea is that you then try and hold the the line um, into turn two, the second part of it, but you just get run out of road or you outbreak yourself and go straight on. So I, I, I felt like to get the move done into turn one, you had th- three options. One, you got a good enough run that you were able to get past early enough on the straight or challenge early enough on the straight to get to the inside and then have the inside for the braking zone fly past on the outside so far ahead that it didn't matter where the person on the inside breaks because you were miles into the corner or be so far alongside on the outside that you could properly contest it into the braking zone and, and you couldn't be forced wide basically and I, I, I don't I, I think those timid moments came when it wasn't you know conclusively Perez's corner I felt like he was uh, he was stretching the limit of this is a polite way of putting it, stretching the limit of what is being forced off the track sometimes. But I may, maybe he could have been a bit more aggressive. But I think it's a matter of biding your time because you know you've got the faster car and therefore you're just trying to pull it off in the kind of the safest way possible, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair evaluation. Trisha Harding says, do these tyre regulations for qualifying mean that a car out in Q3 has an extra set of medium and soft tyres to use in the race? I have suspicion of this question, that might mean Q1. And the reason I suspect that is pretty much every time I try to type Q1 and someone's eliminated, I type Q3. I may have even originated this problem in our uh, list of questions, but I'll answer it properly. With the ATA, obviously, there's no difference in in tyres depending on where you get through obviously you've got to use the hards in q1 the mediums in q2 softs in q3 but you don't get any extra tires and also yes if it's the question that if you go out in q1 you have more fresh tires yeah you do just as with uh, the normal tire allocation so for example just to pick out one of the q3 eliminated drivers gasly went in today with three sets of hards all of which were used three sets of mediums all of which were unused and a set of brand new soft so there is an advantage if you're out in q1 in that regard not enough to compensate for the elimination but yeah you have your 11 sets of tires and that doesn't change based on whether you advance or not it's just 11 sets so i hope that answers the question apologies if i uh, if i've confused that <laughs> that question mark the final question for you from urban strenchan says what happened to lewis hamilton because he complained so much about the stability of the car lewis just didn't get in the car in a sweet spot at all this weekend it's, it's, it's not a it's not an easy car as we know but um george just did a better job with it and so poor qualifying slot led the team to offset his strategy with the hard tyre starting on the hard tyre, and that, that made it an even more difficult drive. And then, of course, he got the, you know, running in the in the pack with it on a hot day. He got the, the brake disc was overheating, and they were thinking of having to retire it at one point. It would have done two more laps, apparently, that brake disc. Um, yeah, just not one of his best weekends. And a couple of that with the error in... Uh, his manoeuvre on Piastri and it's yeah it's a bit just a scrappy weekend um, one I'm sure he'll be keen to move on from 
Well, thanks very much to everyone for your questions. And of course, thanks to Mark and Scott for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there all about the Italian Grand Prix and obviously as we move towards the Singapore Grand Prix because the F1 world never stops. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, our Formula E podcast, IndyCar, MotoGP, the Gary Anderson show, as I like to call it. Well, it was called the Gary Anderson show a long time ago, but actually it's the Race F1 tech show now with Gary Anderson. Lots to listen to and also have a look at our YouTube channel as well. Well, well, we're now turning our attention to the next run of eight more races that Red Bull are going to try and win to have an unprecedented clean sweep. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. <laughs> 